here. And that lets you save the look here. True form life. Green look on Welcome to another edition of Exploring Mind and Body. As always, I'm your host, Drew Tadia. Today, I'm very excited to have with us Sierra Prasada, and she co-authored The Creative Compass with her father, Dan Millman. So we're really looking forward to having her on the show. This is going to be on exploringmindandbody.com forward slash Creative Compass Sierra. So go to the website, check out some show notes and some links to what we talk about. Uh, once again, we couldn't be more grateful to have Sierra on the show to talk about their new book. We got all that coming up on... This is Exploring Mind and Body. Naturally improve your lifestyle one show at a time with your host, Drew Tadia. Welcome to another edition of Exploring Mind and Body. I'm very excited to invite Sierra Prasada on the show with us. She co-authored a book with Dan Millman, which is her father, and uh, we're excited to have her on. And uh, let's welcome her to the show. Thanks so much for joining us, Sierra. My pleasure. Great to be here. So today we're talking about the creative compass. How did this come about? You two just got together and decided you wanted to write a book together? Um, That would sort of be the short version. The slightly longer version would be that My dad and I have been working together more informally for a long time. He's been reading my work ever since I was young and, you know, giving me suggestions. And once I got old enough and had enough experience, I started to read his work and give him comments. And so we had been talking about writing also for many years. So when he decided it was finally a fruitful time for him to consider, you know, writing a book on writing, which is something that he'd long wanted to do, Um, He also saw the opportunity for us to work together more formally, which was something else that he had wanted to happen. And when he asked me if I wanted to work on a book with him, in particular this project, um, I didn't have to hesitate for that long before I said yes. (laughs) I bet. Well, what was it like to have a a writer as a father, an author? Was he always critiquing your work, or um, did he kind of let you do your own thing? Well, he was very invested in his own projects, like all writers are. So if I showed him something, then he would certainly look it over and give me comments. And he would do the same for my younger sister as well. And both of us were pretty stubborn from a pretty young age. So we would never use all of his suggestions. (laughs) So it wasn't so much intrusion on his part as us realizing that, you know, having an editor sort of made sense. And and just grateful that we had such a skilled editor at hand. <laughs> well, I guess I don't think you're in uh, any different boat than another child with their parent. We just don't like to listen to them. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I wanted to ask you about, you know, your, your writing career. You, you moved, uh, you moved to Lebanon. That was, uh, I mean, that, that's kind of where you began your career in journalism and writing your own book and then learning a new language that I want to talk about how it translates to this book. So, uh, how did that come about? How did you decide to, was it for a job or, or something you really wanted to do? How did that come about moving to another country? Sure. Well, I was kind of a typical journalist and that I did journalism in school. I actually had my first article published for a national audience for this youth uh, newspaper, which I believe still exists. I think it was called Fast Forward when I was 11. Um, and I continued to write for various school papers. I co-edited my high school newspaper. Um, but I didn't decide until a long while later to go to journalism school after I had... Um, after I had certainly written quite a bit. And then while I was in journalism school, I did an internship with the Associated Press in Cairo. Um, And this was a really influential experience because I just became very interested in learning Arabic. And 
maybe this is where the story gets a little bit more unusual because rather than being someone who wanted to learn Arabic um, so I could have a journalism career, I was actually more someone who wanted to have a journalism career so I could learn Arabic. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't so much that I didn't uh, appreciate journalism or that I didn't love writing, which I do, but for whatever reason, that became kind of my passion. So I moved to Lebanon very much with the idea of wanting to continue to study Arabic and also knowing that, that speaking the language and understanding it would make me a better writer. And I think from a relatively young age, um, I'd actually had a couple of, I'd had a monologue that I wrote in middle school get published in a book and then republished in another book, both anthologies. And you know, I think that looking back now, I can say that I, there's something about book writing that I resonate with much more than, than journalism. I'm much more interested in um, I'm not even sure entirely how to define it because there are aspects of journalism that have really influenced the kind of craft I consider myself practicing. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm not as interested in something that, you know, that just because it's new. That, that doesn't tend to interest me as much. I'm, I'm more interested in kind of timeless truths, for lack of a better description. Did you say you had a, something published when you were 11? <laughs> that, was, that was an article. And then around the same time, I had a monologue published in a book that I think it was called the first publication was called by kids for kids and the second the republication was in a Prentice Hall textbook which was actually quite ironic because at the time I think uh, there was a brief period when I said I was never going to allow any of my writing to be put in textbooks that kids <laughs> would be quizzed on apparently I I, uh, I folded on that pretty quickly <laughs> so, they twisted your arm did they exactly was there any time that you thought this is what I need to do or, or this is kind of what I want my life to be about is, is writing or, or uh, publishing articles or helping people learn truths or, or situations in, in journalism? Actually, no. <laughs> I didn't really have any kind of mission like that, certainly from a young age. And I, even now, I resonate a little more with the idea of wanting to do something than wanting to be something. You know, it's like I, I want to write more. I'll always want to write. And I particularly resonate to writing for publication in part because you're writing to your highest standard and I enjoy the work of rewriting and what we call developing in the book, which you know we identify as the third of five universal stages, um, which I'm happy to talk more about. But, um, but that, that always means more to me, honestly, than the idea of being a writer or like being something specific. I just think it's that verb that is the most energizing, honestly. I was interested in how you talk about your experience in Lebanon and how uh, your your writers. I love reading books, and writers have such a powering way about how they express a message. And how you talked about learning this language and and how it can how it helped you, um, you know, with the creative compass. Can you talk about the struggles or, or how you got through learning this? Uh, I can only guess how extreme language it was to to get through. Can you talk about how um, you got through that process in your life? Sure. Um, and there's a lot of parallels actually between, for me, you know, learning Arabic and working on writing because, um, you know, both of them are, I mean, both learning another language, especially if you're kind of venturing out of your own comfort zone to learn a language, you know, rather than getting a lot of people end up having to learn a language because they end up having to move, whether for economic or family reasons. And then they're kind of thrust into a different culture and, you know, really forced to learn that language, to interact in it all the time. And, and I felt a little more of that once I was living in Lebanon. But even then, I was aware of it being more of a voluntary pursuit. And it's, it's the same with writing. I mean, that makes it a little more similar to, to 
struggling to become a writer because it is something that you have to want and you have to be driven by your own desire because the world isn't necessarily going to um, it's not necessarily going to welcome welcome the work from you. Certainly at the beginning, you have to prove your worth right. to a certain extent. And with with Arabic, it's the same. It's people think of it as a very difficult language to learn, and there are aspects of it. It has a different script than you know than what we write in English, and and there has some there are some sounds in the alphabet that we don't use in, in again in English or in a number of other languages. But it's more that it's a logistically challenging language to learn um, for a whole number of reasons I won't go into. <laughs> but, you know, writing similarly can be quite logistically challenging because, you know, we're confronted with these, we're confronted with certain, you know, essential mysteries, um, one of which is more, uh, has to do with the work, which, again, is this idea of once you have written something, how do you transform it into something? Like how, once you've produced a first draft, let's say, how do you transform it into a final draft? You know, this is one of the mysteries that we that we um, address in the book with the third stage development, right. which we call the missing link. And then when it comes to you know finding people to uh, to give the right people to give you feedback, um, so you can really op- have that conversation with readers that will actually enable you to write a book for readers. And in the same way with learning a language, there is a whole host of challenges associated with really learning to speak the kind of language that other people will understand. I mean, I actually saw, the more I wrote and the more I studied languages, the more I saw parallels between them. And, you know, this metaphor of translation runs throughout the creative compass, which is the idea that we actually have to translate what's in our own heads onto the page and produce it or express it in a form that others will understand it in the way we have and that others will feel the same emotional effect that the material had on us. And we have the same exact battle in learning another language. You know, it's not enough just to use the words or even to know the grammar. There are expressions that, you know, have different situations and that are not, you know, directly translatable to your own language. And there's body language and there's knowing about the culture and having that, you know, infuse the language. So to me, they were really parallel pursuits. I thought you guys did a great job of explaining how a real professional writer is able to do that in in creating their works of art. Well, thank you. I just want to take a short break. We're going to get into more details about the Creative Compass. And again, I'm with Sierra Prasada, and uh, we'll be right back after this break. Exploring Mind and Body with True Form Life's Drew Tadia is brought to you in part by Kathy and Connie, the new real estate team in town with Widmer Realty. Contact them today for all your real estate needs. We're back here on Exploring Mind and Body. I'm Drew Tadia, your host, and I'm with Sierra Prasada, co-author of The Creative Compass. And uh, we're so grateful that she's with us today and, and talking about their book. Um, you know what, Sierra, I wanted to ask you, I always wonder what uh, the favorite, most favorite part of each author's book is because they're so personal and there's so much that uh, we put into these pieces of art. And uh, I want to know from you what, what your favorite part of the book is. Oh, dear. Nobody has asked me that yet. That's actually a really hard question to answer. <laughs> um, Sorry to put you on the spot. Well, there's probably a number of different things, but I'll just choose one. I think that uh, one of we have the book is divided into six sections. The first one titled "Beginning," and then one section for each of the five stages: dream, draft, develop, refine, and share. And the very first section, "Beginning," uh, includes a personal essay by one by each of my dad and I. And each section after that also includes a personal essay. But that particular personal essay from the first 
section, which is called The Other Side of Anxiety, might be a sort of favorite just because, it's, in a sense, it's one of the oldest parts of the, of the book, the oldest surviving parts, I should say, um, because we, we sold the book originally on, as a proposal to the publisher. And that was one of the sample chapters in the original proposal that sold the book. And that particular chapter is mainly deals with the story of what it was like for me um, writing in high school and kind of where I took it from there. And it expresses a point that is really important to me, which I think is something we don't necessarily always think about. Um, you know, it kind of goes back to your question about whether I wanted to be a writer or whether, you know, that was something I saw myself doing in the future when I was young. And when I was in high school, I found writing, writing caused me a lot of anxiety. Um, I write in the book how I used to, you know, have sort of like panic attacks sometimes over papers. And so writing wasn't necessarily something I always thought of myself as enjoying. And in retrospect, I think that was because I just wanted so much to succeed at it. I, w- I really loved it. And so anything you love, you know, I mean, in a sense, love is the other side of anxiety, and anxiety is the other side of love because we, we inevitably fear losing the thing we love. We don't necessarily like our attachment to it. And so I feel like that maybe love and hate, in a way, are opposite sides of the same coin. And that was something I was glad I had a chance to address directly in the book. Yeah, along with that anxiety, does that have something to do with how you thought you didn't want anything published or anyone to read what you were, what you were writing? Actually, that was more because I just didn't like the idea of anything I wrote being turned into a quiz or an essay prompt. <laughs> <laughs> because even now, you know, I kind of... Um, there are some. I mean, I, I was so lucky, and I had so many wonderful teachers from high school and college, and you know, my younger years as well. But um, I know that writing sometimes can be presented as as really very boring and just purely analytical in school. And a lot of people don't, and I was one of them, don't enjoy writing essay after essay after essay, or just taking tests or filling out prompts in class and. Um, you know, even at the time, I think I was aware that there was a different kind of writing you could do, and the idea of that writing simply becoming more material, in a sense, for uh, for boring school assignments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was the same way. Like, I, I really dislike school in a lot of ways, but I understand that it helped me, you know, be more, become who I am now. So I think a lot of us can resonate with what you're saying. One of the things that, that kind of came up in when I was listening to you talk earlier and one of the questions that I thought of when I was going through your book was deadlines and uh, how important deadlines are. I think it's different if you're writing for a publisher or you're writing for a, a magazine or, or newspaper, however it is, but how important are deadlines to you personally? As you guys go over it in the book, it's, uh, I think it's important to address that, to let people know that, you know, sometimes deadlines are beneficial to get your work out there. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, I, I totally second what you're saying, and, and it's something we, we do directly address in the book. I think deadlines are very important entirely because, I mean, for me at least, deadlines give me permission to finish. When I set myself a <laughs> deadline, um, and I have learned through the years, and I still, you know, have to tweak this every now and then, um, how to kind of set an appropriate deadline, a deadline in which I actually can accomplish what I've set out to accomplish you know, in that period of time. And, and again, let's differentiate between self-imposed deadlines and deadlines set by others. Right. But um, I find when I set my own deadlines, you know, that deadline not only enables me to get started um, often more quickly, but it gives me a point in time where I know that thing will be done. It helps me organize myself, and it helps me be more creative 
because um, it's just easier to be creative, you know, for me, focusing on one thing at a time, and deadlines help me do that. So you set your own deadlines, even like maybe underneath, or if there's another project that doesn't need to be done by an outside source, like a publisher, for example? Yeah, I mean, even when, a, when, even when there is an outside deadline, typically, like for example, you know, we had three months uh, to write the draft uh, of the book that we were going to turn into our publisher, and by draft, I really mean just like the first phase of the writing over the editorial process. Um, and, you know, in that time, I set all kinds of short deadlines. I set deadlines. I typically tended to set the deadlines per chapter because that was a small enough section that I could usually finish it in one or two days. Um, and those deadlines were the more relevant to me. I mean, partly because it, gives, it just gives you more autonomy in some sense to set your own deadlines, and partly because a deadline three months out is not really that meaningful on a day-to-day basis unless you make it so. Right. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You guys stayed in there. Um, all projects require some form of research, which I thought it was, it was nice to hear because uh, when I was writing, um, I did a lot of research just to make sure my T's are crossed and my I's are dots and, and make yeah. sure everything was, was, was proper. And, and I didn't know if that was the proper way to do things, but it was so nice to hear that, that that's, uh, that's important to you guys as well. And I think it actually, I mean, it removes a certain burden from the writer, too, knowing that, you know, we're always drawing on the world and we're always drawing on other people and everything we do. And that maybe is the inherently collaborative part of writing as well that we're, you know, invoking in this case. We have something coming up here that's kind of important to me in a certain way. It's actually my favorite part of the book and next to marketing because I love to market but it's something that you wrote and uh, it really resonates with me inside and, and I want to go over that with you and, and hear what you have to say about that but we do have a take a quick break so we'll be back with that that's my favorite part coming up Exploring mind and body would not be possible without help from the French Learning Center. The French Learning Center, offering tutoring, French day camps, adult classes, and more. Contact Dorothy Keith for more information at 403-586-5714. That's 586-5714. The French Learning Center, a proud supporter of exploring mind and body with True Form Life's Drew Tadia. All right, we're back on Exploring Mind and Body. We're talking about The Creative Compass with Sierra Prasada. And uh, this is my favorite part of the book. And it's just a few words Sierra wrote. um, And I wanted to share it with you guys. It's uh, sometimes I say nothing and just listen because silence can be the most effective question. Silence gives stories meaning that words alone cannot. And uh, I just feel that there's so much noise going on in this world and there's so many people talking that we lose substance. And uh, I thought I really liked that and I wanted to hear what you had to say about that, Sarah, and where it came from. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it was something that personally resonated with me a great deal. That, um, that particular uh, couple of lines comes from a chapter in the Creative Compass called How to Listen. And it was something that I, you know, when I was in college for my first article for the, for the Stanford Daily, I, pro, I wrote an obituary of a, of a young alumnus who had died in an avalanche. And in the course of doing an interview with his former varsity sailing coach, um, at the time I, uh, I was sort of chained to my desk and I used to take notes on computer and I was doing the, phone, the interview over the phone, so I had like the cradle of the phone pressed to my ear. This was Maybe even have been pre-headset, and um, yeah, that was. And I remember that I just couldn't type that quickly, so I had to. I couldn't always ask the questions, you know, right after the next. And what would happen is, you know, in this case, 
you know, he would pause and wait for me to ask another question. When I didn't, it was obvious that the silence would become a little bit uncomfortable. So eventually he would start speaking again. And in kind of speaking, needing to speak again, he had to kind of search his, his brain for something else to say in response to the question. And he ended up telling me a story about the young man. His name is Jeremy David McIntyre. Um, that was really, it was a really essential story just to kind of communicate just something about his character, which is the whole point, of course, of an obituary. And uh, it was something I, it just taught me at the time that, um, you know, just the, something about the power of silence in conversation in particular, and it made me start to pay more attention to the role that silence played and just how much meaning was invested in a pause or, um, I don't know, just in this, whether it be the space between words or when it comes to the written page, you know, the way punctuation marks actually tell us something about the quality of the silence in between the words. And it's just not something that I had thought about that much before. And it's something that interested me. And a lot of it, yes, I think is that there is a lot more noise. There is a lot more media. There is a lot more that we have to sort of tune out in order to hear our own voices in our heads. And I think that's a, you know, a big part of the writing process is learning to listen and learning, you know, which voices to listen to. Um, the voices that are going to lead us forward in our own work and in our lives. Thanks for sharing that with us. And I really enjoyed that. And like I said earlier in the show that you guys have, authors have such a, you know, such a powerful way about explaining stories. Like I felt like I was listening to the story as you talked about that old phone with the cord wrapped around your, wrapped around your ear in between your arm. That was uh, really cool. I kind of felt like I was being a part of that story. Well, I'm really glad to hear that. So one of the other questions I wanted to talk about was, um, I, I really like this one too, and you guys talk about uh, we must permit ourselves to write badly. <laughs> and yeah. I think uh, so many people are, are afraid to start and they don't know what's going to come out and they don't know what people are going to think. And by just starting and understanding that everything's not going to be perfect, that uh, just start writing and, and, and accept that some of it's not going to be great. Yeah, and I think so much, typically, whatever stops us from writing, you know, it's not that someone, like as we say in the book, it's not that someone pulls a pen out of our hands or, you know, locks us in a room with no, you know, no writing implements, no material, no paper. But um, we stop ourselves from writing, and almost always we stop ourselves from writing because we feel that our, what we're writing is bad. And I guess the question then becomes, if that didn't have the power to make us stop writing... You know, if we were supposed to write badly, um, and in fact, you know, it makes sense that we are, because writing badly is uh, an inevitable intermediary step to writing well, then that wouldn't stop us, and we would keep writing, and in keeping writing, we would get more quickly to the good writing. We would spend more time working over writing we saw as bad. We would figure out why exactly we thought it was bad, and that would teach us how to fix it and how to make it better. I think that's important for, for uh, young, aspiring authors to understand, and, uh, and that's a great note that you guys go over in your book there, The Creative Compass. If someone bumps into you in, uh, in a bookstore or a tour, and uh, someone that's been over read your book, and uh, you know, what, what, uh, what would you hope someone would say to you? You know, I honestly would hope that they would say some of the things, you know, that you've already said just about, you know, the way the book has resonated with them and that it hopefully inspired them, you know, to write more, to create more, to do whatever things that they have been, you know, challenged uh, with or struggling to do that they really want to do. I mean, because we do struggle to do the things we really want to do, as, as counterintuitive as that may sound. I'm sure you understand. Right. Um, I think also just uh, the idea, one of the central ideas of the book again, goes back to this middle stage development, which I think is important to emphasize because it is a stage that we miss so often that it's so easy just to write a draft and then sort of clean it up, polish it, you know, spell check it, format it, and feel that it's finished. 
And not only is it unlikely to be finished, but we also sort of cheat ourselves of what I consider, my dad considers, and, and many writers consider to be, you know, the core of writing, the most rewarding part, which is, you know, rewriting, revising, translating, um, again, that, that act of translation and transforming our work. So, and, and that transformation, of course, comes from, from being able to see our work differently. We actually have to come back to a draft with new eyes in order to see how the words you know, that we previously thought were just right need to be rewritten uh, to express something slightly different or to express it in a different way. And so whenever our people do come up um, to me or when they come, when they participate in my dad's and my courses, because we just taught our first uh, weekend workshop at Mount Madonna Center in Watsonville, California, we'll be teaching another workshop in the first, kind of the first weekend of December, not this coming weekend, but the next one at Kripalu in western Massachusetts. So we're really gratified when people come up and say that, you know, that development in particular has resonated with them and that they're actually approaching their draft in a different way and kind of learning over time how to see things in a new way. Because um, we feel when they say that, that that is perhaps the greatest impact we could have on them, you know, as fellow writers and as teachers. Right. Yeah. And I appreciate you sharing that with us because you never know if famous authors get numb to that kind of feeling um, or those those thoughts or, or words shared when I wrote my book, the the best thing that I could, I could ever get out of it is opening up my email box in the morning and, and having a testimonial tell me how I've changed their life in some manner. And and again, it's nice to hear that that you guys don't get uh, you don't get numb to that feeling, or it's just kind of uh, other words just getting brushed off your back. Well, probably fortunately, I definitely don't consider myself a famous author, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but who knows? I guess. No, it's, uh, I mean, both my dad and I. You know, it's amazing. I think we just have. We just really are aware of, I mean, where we were when we first started and what it was like to have less experience. And, and just this is something we think about a lot, that journey of being a writer. It's kind of like, I don't know, it's like, I mean, it's a story in itself, just as the, the five stages we write about are their own story with the writer kind of as the protagonist. And it's something that I guess you always look back on your own beginning, again, with a sort of nostalgia and also wanting to understand it better from a different vantage point. Just before we wrap things up, I hope this isn't a difficult question to close things out with, but I always wonder about challenges. You know, there's always ups and downs with projects like this. And I wanted to ask you what the hardest part about writing this book was. That's a great question. I suppose, you know, it's the thing that's hardest for any writer, which is, again, thinking you're finished and then realizing you're not finished. And, I mean, that has both its difficult aspects and its rewarding aspects. Because, like, for example, um, you know, we did one developmental round of editing in which we did, you know, some some bigger changes to chapters. Um, and then, you know, our next round of editing was supposed to be the copy edit, and it turned out, based on the comments from the editor, to be another round of developmental editing. So at first, we were a little bit chagrined by that, kind of hoping we had reached further in the process <laughs> than we had. But once we started doing those edits, and you know, once we finished them especially, we were just really grateful that we'd had the chance to make the book that much better. We'd had that much more time. Um, we'd had that much more of an opportunity to, again, see our own work differently, to come back to it differently. Um, so I think, I mean, maybe, again, that's also a kind of a typical story, is the things we tend in the past to have seen, well, 
when they were in the present as the most challenging often end up being the most rewarding in retrospect. I wish we had more time. I really do. I think I could talk to you for another hour at least on, on this book. I have tons of questions written down that we didn't get to, but I understand you have things to do too. So um, again, we're with uh, Sierra Prasada. Um, she co-authored with Dan Millman, The Creative Compass. And for more information, you can visit sierraprasada.com. And we're going to have a, a blog post. This is going to be exploringmindandbody.com forward slash creative compass Sierra. So you can find out more details there and listen to the entire show. But uh, once again, Sierra, thank you so much for your time. I'm, I'm so grateful to have, have you with us and, and explain your book to us because just going over it, I, I know a number of, of newer authors that, that would love to get their hands on this book. My pleasure, Drew. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Exploring Mind and Body with True Form's Drew Taddea would not be possible without the help from the following sponsors. AG Foods in Didsbury, Health Street in the Cornerstone Shopping Center Olds, and Shoppers Drug Mart, working together to help build a healthier tomorrow. For more information on True Form Life, Drew Taddea, or to find out how you can become a sponsor, visit exploringmindandbody.com. All right, that's all we have for you this evening. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks to my producer, Jameson Brown. And uh, every chance you get, we really appreciate your time. Uh, don't miss out the next show. We have Dan Millman coming on, and he's talking about the creative compass as well. He has some interesting stories, and uh, I'm a big fan of his. He's, uh, he is uh, a peaceful warrior author and a number of other books that I really enjoy myself. So hope you get a chance to listen. As always, I'm your host, Drew Taddea, in health and fitness for a better world. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Exploring Mind and Body with True Form Life's Drew Tadia, fitness expert. To find out more about the show, Drew Tadia, or to listen to past shows, visit exploringmindandbody.com. Exploring Mind and Body with True Form Life's Drew Tadia would not be possible without the help of GDK Gravel and Sand. GDK Gravel and Sand, now offering all products in half and one yard bags. Give them a call today for more information. 1-877-335-2091.